Turn to Jeremiah chapter 36. It's only 32 verses, but it is a little bit longer. I've started doing my word count. Um, I do want to mention that we have Gwendolyn Miller with us here for the first time this morning, a new covenant child of uh, the Millers, Justin and Larissa. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to meet Gwendolyn, do so after the service. So we're thankful to God for her. Jeremiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until now. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against his people." And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about, the reading, about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gamaria, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. When Micaiah, the son of Gamaria, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house and to the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gamaria, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, who is not the king, Zedekiah, by the way, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, son of Shelemiah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take in your hand the scroll that you read, in the hearing, or that you read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they turned one to another in fear. And they said to Baruch, We must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, He dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with the ink on scroll. Then the officials said to Baruch, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. 
So they went into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gamaria urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the, king, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster I have pronounced against them. But they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would you now, as we have sung and prayed, would you speak to us? Would you open your word and show us wonderful things? Would you take from your word and plant deeply into our hearts? For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know I butchered some of those names. Jehudi's the southern pronunciation, and that just comes out way more naturally than the Yehudai of the actual Hebrew pronunciation. So it doesn't matter how much I think about it beforehand, the southern in me just comes out. So it will, for me, be Jehudi today, and that's okay. Uh, well, this chapter uh, 36 is, is one that is, again, in this section of the book of Jeremiah, the latter section that contains more of these thematic things, like we saw in chapters 34 and 35, the contrast. Now we're looking at something that, that, that happened fairly early uh, in, in terms of the overall story of Jeremiah's book, but about maybe halfway through his ministry of about 40 years. This was about the 20-year mark during Jehoiakim's reign. So we're going back in time a little bit further than where we were the last few weeks. And there are a number of significant events that are going on, not only in Jerusalem and in Judah, but in the area around them, in the region around them. You remember Jehoiakim was the the son of Josiah. There was one Jehoahaz before him, uh, you know, in terms of the succession, but his reign was three months. And and in some cases, both Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin, who who both had those three-month reigns on either side of Jehoiakim, many of the historical accounts don't even record those reigns because they're not considered 
true reigns are legitimate. There was always a year of ascension and coronation, all this kind of thing. And so they never even made it to that mark. And so, uh, you know, really it was from Josiah we get Jehoiakim. And the contrast is, is quite stark because Josiah, when his people discovered the law buried in the temple... You know, he tore his clothes and he lamented that they had not been following God's word and he led the people in repentance and a restoration to listen and follow the word of God. And here Jehoiakim does, frankly, the very opposite uh, of his father. And so we see his corruption just one generation in. And so uh, the, the, the world around them was changing. It wasn't just in Judah and in Jerusalem. Assyria was no longer the world power as Babylon was now rising up because we're going back in time. In many cases, when we're in, um, in, in Jeremiah, we don't know exactly when things are happening. But in this chapter, we're told exactly the time frame. And so we can fit in some of the other pieces. So Assyria is fading out. Babylon is the new rising superpower. Nebuchadnezzar, who at this point is still a prince, he's not yet king. And so he is leading the army, and they have just defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish, which was the kind of their solidifying battle, which established them as the new world superpower. And after that, he just kept on. Uh, you know, he just kept, you know, that was, he was gaining momentum. And so one of the cities that he attacked following Carchemish was Ashkelon. And Ashkelon was a Philistine city, so he's getting really close to Jerusalem. If you, um, if you think of modern-day Israel, you know, if, if, if you've ever done this, it's kind of like your hand. Jerusalem's about in the center. Uh, so if you know where Gaza is on a modern-day map, that's about where Ashkelon was. So you know, there's a reason to be concerned that here comes this new world superpower and they're within, uh, you know, a few dozen miles of the city. Uh, now, the Lord redirected Nebuchadnezzar because his dad died and he had to go back to Babylon to, be, uh, to, to, to come to the throne, to ascend the throne. And so that threat didn't happen. The people didn't know that was about to happen. So all of this is going on. This army of the north that Jeremiah has been prophesying about for 23 years is now at their doorstep. Uh, just just a, a few towns over along the coast. Jehoiakim, though, seems unfazed by this. He doesn't, there's no evidence of his concern. Instead, he wants to silence Jeremiah. He doesn't, even though the evidence is right before his eyes now, everything Jeremiah has prophesied, it's, it's coming to fruition, it seems. He wants to ignore it. Now, Jeremiah's message has been consistent over the 23 years. We've become quite familiar with it now. It's a call to repentance and we see that even in this uh, chapter in verses 3 and 7 where it's highlighted that, that the reason for Jeremiah's uh, prophesying was that the people might turn, was that the people might repent, that they might hear and obey the voice of God. And so this burning of the scroll then marks not only Jehoiakim's corruption by the rejection of God's word, but it really becomes this representative act for the people of Judah. Uh, some consider this kind of the mark at which uh, the Lord's call to repentance begins to lessen, and it's just now a call to judgment. And because Jeremiah is not written chronologically, we don't see this as clearly, but if we, if we place the chronological passages in order, we do see this happen, that in the latter years of Jeremiah's message, it became more a message of judgments on the way it's coming. And in a sense, it's already been put together because Nebuchadnezzar is on the rise. By the end of the account, however, we see that no man, king or peasant, can stop God's purpose. 
His word will stand forever. Nothing can stop his word from going forth. As Isaiah writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. So this is a timely message for us. In a day and an age where we see fewer and fewer people hearing, listening, and wanting to, 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 to listen to God's word. In a, a week that follows an election where we see not only our culture, but many of our leaders rejecting what God's word says. It is a time that, uh, or a message that is suitable for our time, that we do not lose hope, even as Judah would not lose hope, or should not lose hope. Why? If they could just repent and turn, God says, I'm going to remove judgment from you. God's purposes stand. He will accomplish all that he had determined. And so just as the people of Judah were not to put their hope in the political outcomes of their day or in the kings and rulers of their day, neither are we to put our hopes in the ups and downs of our political climate. Our hope is in the Lord. His word stands forever. Even though the grass withers and the flower fades, and that's where we anchor our hope, no matter what's happening on the spheres outside. So now looking at verse 1, as I mentioned, we know exactly when this happened. We're in the fourth year, so this is 605 B.C., uh, so we know exactly when this, this particular event occurred. Uh, King Jehoiakim, uh, who reigned 11 years, is, is at, at year number four. So uh, Jeremiah, he has heard, he knows Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been prophesying now for, for 23 years. So he began his ministry under Josiah. So Jehoiakim's well familiar with this. And this plays into the story. The, the message that, that, that Jeremiah collected and wrote in the scroll was not a new word. It wasn't a new message. It wasn't new information. It was the same message. It was just simply a collection of all the messages that the Lord had given him and put into one scroll and then read. And so this judgment that was coming was not new news. Now, Jeremiah is instructed to do this, to take a scroll, to record on it all the words the Lord has spoken. He says, from the days of Josiah until today. And so... The, the, the reasoning is provided in verse 3, that it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So here, clearly, the call to repentance, the option to repent is still on the table because the call is right here, that God would forgive their sin. And it was a, uh, you, you almost get the sense of God is just patiently waiting to show mercy. Just repent. All you have to do is repent. I don't want to do this. I don't want to bring this judgment. But it's coming if you don't turn from your evil way. And yet, not only would the people refuse to listen, but the king would lead in that refusal. The king would uh, set the example and would lead the people, not just in a rejection, but in this act of, of rebelliousness, this very deliberate act of tearing off the scroll piece by piece and burning it. It's interesting to note that Jeremiah is to create a specific scroll of all the words that I have spoken to you. It's likely that Jeremiah had been writing down messages. Not that he, I mean, maybe he recalled them all from memory, but there are evidences of 
of the, the, you know, writing was very common in this time among certain spheres. I mean, Baruch was a professional scribe, and so it wasn't like, you know, people didn't have access to writing, even though it wouldn't have all been done on scrolls. It would have been done in pottery, uh, uh, etched in pottery, and this kind of thing. And so it's very likely that Jeremiah had a collection of the messages here, but here he is uh, instructed to make a a compilation, to bring it all together, to put it on one scroll. And it's going to serve a purpose here for this specific event. But it also gives us insight into how Revelation came about. We know that there were many prophets who were sent to God's people, but not all prophets were instructed to record in writing their messages. We know, I think of Uriah, the, the one prophet that's mentioned in, in, uh, in uh, Jeremiah that was killed. Uh, he, he didn't write a book of the Bible. So there were, there were other prophets who didn't record uh, their messages. Their message was simply oral given to the people of God. So this is, one of, this is, this is how uh, God's word came to us in that God gave him instruction, not only giving him his word, but he said, write it down. He gave him the instruction to actually have it written. And having been given the task, Jeremiah is, is told to write all the words. So scripture then is God's word, that is, it is God-breathed, it's from God, but it's written by men. So we can read and see and hear to understand what God is saying. Jeremiah's experience becomes a part of this. We're hearing it from Jeremiah's words, so his personality becomes a part of this. And we get to see that in, in, in all the various uh, books of the Bible, how different writers had different personalities. That's not lost in that. But the end result is it remains God's word to us. In verse 4, we see that Jeremiah enlists the, the help of this uh, scribe, Baruch. We've met him before, but this is the first time, at least chronologically, that he comes into Jeremiah's life where he is now hired. We don't know a ton about Baruch, but he seems to be a, a good employee. Uh, there, I would imagine they developed some kind of friendship because the loyalty that was required by Baruch to stand with Jeremiah is, is notable. There had to be other gigs that paid just as well or you know, whatever Jeremiah was paying that didn't have the stress of being associated with Jeremiah. And so for that reason alone, I think there was a kinship and a connectedness and a sense of calling, uh, even though it's not recorded here, that, uh, that Baruch must have felt in his life to do this task. And he will work with Jeremiah through this this. What was a task? I mean, if you think of the, the, the number of uh, uh, verses and, and, and how many times now it's going to get recorded, right? They do one scroll, it gets burned, they get to go back and do that one and then add to it so that the version of Jeremiah that we have before us today, it's, it's a fairly long book. And if you think of writing that, that's quite a task. So his job, Baruch's job, is to write from the mouth. That is, he is to take dictation all the words that Jeremiah provides uh, as the Lord has spoken to Jeremiah. So there's not creative license. Uh, Baruch is not an editor. Uh, Baruch is taking dictation. And if you noticed when we read through that, the number of times in chapter 36 we are told that, he, that Jeremiah dictated and Baruch wrote all the words to make it clear that this wasn't some human effort. This was God's word given and recorded for us. Now, when the job is done, Jeremiah tells Baruch to go and read the scroll in the temple during a fast when there would be many extra people there. Now, the reason Jeremiah says is that he's been barred from the temple, but we're not told exactly why he was barred. 
However, it's not hard for us to imagine. Uh, Jeremiah had already had a few kerfuffles with the, the temple crowd. And uh, you think of the temple sermon that would have preceded this. You think of when Pashur put him in stocks. And so at some point, Jeremiah is told, you're not welcome here anymore. And so at this stage of the game, he uh, knows that he's not going to have the option to go in and read it. He'd be thrown out. He's barred from the temple. And so Baruch goes. And he goes at a time when this fast is called so that the crowd is large. There were the people from not just Jerusalem, but from the outside cities would have come in. The fast that's mentioned isn't a normal one. We're, we're beyond the festival season. Verse 9 tells us not only the year, but the month. So we're now in 604 B.C. So it, we don't know how long it took to record the first scroll, but a year is how much time passed. So maybe it took about that long. So we're in this uh, month that corresponds to our November, December. And so the high festivals would have been, or the, the high feasts would have been uh, earlier in the fall. So this is a called fast. Interestingly enough, this is 604 B.C. This is the same time when Nebuchadnezzar's over in Ashkelon. And so many commentators uh, suggest that the reason for this called fast is because Nebuchadnezzar's at their doorstep. The people are filled with fear. They know that they've heard the rumors. They've heard parts of Jeremiah's message. They know that this, this uh, attack is potentially coming. And so they call a fast because fasts were not called for just any reason. It had to be significant. And so it seems probable that this was the reason why they were gathered together. And Baruch is told to do the reading again. The reason is provided in verse 7. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord, that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So all the events are now converging according to the sovereign purpose of God. And Baruch's reading will give them yet another call to repent. He follows Jeremiah's instruction, he reads it, he goes up into the upper court of the temple, so he has kind of a, you know, a stage uh, from which to read, to, to reach the maximum number of people with the message. And one of the people who hear this reading is this Micaiah, the grandson of Shaphan. You may re- recognize Shaphan's name, we've seen it before. This is the family, I kind of compared them to the Kennedys or the Bushes in our own uh, recent political history, just that lots of members of the family were in leadership in, uh, in, 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 in Jerusalem. And so the family had significant influence and power there. And Jeremiah has a good relationship. He's already benefited from their benevolence. He was protected once by one of the members of this family. And so they seem to be in favor of Jeremiah, but they're concerned. They hear the reading of this report. They're concerned. And Micaiah's reaction is to report it to the officials, not in a tattletale kind of way, but just it, it, it strikes him that this is significant. And so he goes there to these five officials. They're all mentioned by name. This is, these are king's cabinet members. So these are, are, are uh, advisors and decision makers of the king's cabinet, not simply attendants. And they're interested when they hear Micaiah give this report. And so they send Jehudi, uh, Yehudai, uh, to, to go. It's still going to just come out, Jehudi, uh, to bring Baruch and go get Baruch get the scroll, uh, and bring him back. Now, interestingly, uh, Jehudi, um, now I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm butchering it, but, um, or making fun, uh, he, the reason his name is given, he's the only name that's given here with three generations. And, uh, and, and that's because, because from his name we know that he's a Cushite, he's an Egyptian. And so he, his, his ancestors were Gentiles. And according to the, the, the law, they couldn't serve in this role until the third generation. 
And so the Jeremiah records all three generations to show he's a legitimate part of the court. And so uh, Jehudi is, goes, he gets the scroll, he comes back, and uh, and they and they instruct. Uh, he brings Baruch back with him, and they instruct Baruch, you know, sit down. We want to hear it. Now, again, the language that's given, the sit, you know, this kind of thing, it, it all shows that this is a favorable setting. Uh, Baruch doesn't feel threatened in this, and he sits. And now for the second time today, he reads the entire contents of the scroll. And their response is one of fear. Why is it? I mean, you know, at this point, again, we've, Jeremiah has been prophesying for 23 years. Why are they struck with fear at this point? I think the most logical explanation is because they just hear it all in one sitting. You know, when you hear pieces of a story or pieces of a news report, it may not strike you uh, with, with the, the, the emphasis as when it's all consolidated together and you see the whole picture come together. And that's what's happening, is they, they, they sit and they listen to the entire prophecy uh, all the way back to Josiah's time that God has been calling them to repent, to repent, to repent, that an army is coming if they don't. And so they are struck with fear, and they all agree they have to inform the king. Before they do this, though, they ask, ask uh, Baruch some clarifying questions. It, se- it, it seems they, they really want to know, just kind of have it on the record. Now, you wrote this, right? And it was Jeremiah's words that you wrote. Right? They're getting all their T's crossed and their I's dotted. And then once they, they do that, they tell them to go hide. They say, you and uh, Jeremiah both need to go and hide. And this tells us what they thought of their king. Uh, they knew how the king would react. And then they take another step. Instead of taking the scroll to the king, they just go and give him the message by oral report. They, they leave the scroll in Elisha's chamber. They have this sense, it seems, even though it's not recorded, to protect the scroll. And so when uh, he hears, the Jehoiakim hears about this message, he sends Jehudi back to get it and to bring it. And now Jehudi gets to sit and to read the entire scroll to the king. Now, verse 22 makes the note that it's winter time and sets the stage of this fire pot being in the middle of the room so we can understand then what comes next. And the king is sitting there in his winter room facing the south, maximum sunshine, uh, lower level fire pot, some kind of hearth maybe in the middle of the room to keep warm. And as Jehudi begins to read this, uh, he pulls out the scribe's knife and begins to cut it off. Now, if you picture this, this wasn't a, a you know, reading a scroll wasn't like, you know, holding a book or, or something. It was, a, it was, you know, required two hands, uh, and, and depending on the length of the scroll, could, could require some strength. Uh, scrolls were about 10 inches tall, but they could be up to 30 feet long. And if you think of, they were either leather or papyrus, this one would have been papyrus since it burned, uh, that would have you know, created some weight. It's not the refined kind of paper that we have today. If you've ever seen old papyrus, it's very rough and, and heavy, kind of like construction paper, but maybe even heavier than that. So Jehudi has a task, and he's, you know, unrolling one side as he, you know, wants to roll the other side to kind of control it. And he goes and, and, and cuts it off. And, and columns, three or four at a time, he begins cutting them off with the scribe's own knife and throwing them into the fire. The attendants who stood around the king... These were not his advisors, but just those who attended his needs. They knew better than to react. There's no fear among them. Uh, they know the king. They fear the king. But Elnathan, Deliah, 
and Gamaria all speak up, and they, they urge the king to stop. Do not burn the scroll. But he wouldn't listen to them. And so if you think about this, the first probably 24, 25 chapters of Jeremiah that we have in our version, that's how much content was on this first scroll. How much time would that have read, taken to read as he cut off piece by piece and threw it in the fire? A very meticulous, determined act. It wasn't a fit of rage where he took the whole scroll and threw it in the fire. It was this over and over continued, no repentance, no regret, no remorse, just hardness of heart, hardness of heart as he cut off and throws it in the fire. And afterwards, he had consumed the entire scroll. Uh, He sends some of his officers to arrest Baruch and Jeremiah. Verse 26 tells us that the Lord hid them. He protected them. Many ways that people reject God's word, we see it throughout history. Most of the time, people simply, they, they just ignore it. They pretend it doesn't exist, that it doesn't matter, but others are, are um, bent on speaking ill of it, disparaging God's word, ridiculing it. Others try to pick it apart. But Jehoiakim's reaction to God's word is deliberately rebellious. He intentionally seeks to oppose God by opposing his word. He communicates exactly what's in his heart by this act. He thought he could make the message. He thought he could make the person go away. He was king after all. He could stop this. But he didn't realize, he didn't take to heart that who he opposed was God himself. And so his act becomes symbolic for the entire nation of Judah, who also were refusing to hear and to obey. This is what we do when we reject God's word. We act as if we are God, that we have power over God. This is what Jehoiakim was doing. But of course, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And no king or peasant or any person in between could thwart the plan of God. Again, I say it's important in our own time because we see so much more and more in our culture, people who not only refuse to hear God's word, but... They refuse to want anything to do with it. And Romans 1 captures what it looks like when people reject God's good word. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Few could argue that those words describe our own day. And we ought to mourn this. It ought to break our hearts. But we also ought to be humbled by it and seek the ways that we too can be tempted to ignore God's righteous decree. Do any of us follow God's word perfectly? Do we consider the needs of others more important than our own all the time, in every way? Are we kind, tender-hearted? Toward one another? Do we forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us all the time, in every way? 
Are we meek? Or are we haughty? Do we show mercy? Or do we cast judgment? Are we filled with love? Or do we harbor ill against others? Are we angry in our hearts? Do we lust in our hearts? Do we slander and speak ill against one another? See, our attitude must not be when we look at Judah or when we read Romans 1 and we think of our own culture, our attitude must not be one that's filled with pride when we talk about those people. Instead, we should humbly seek the Spirit's guidance and say, Lord, show me where I fail to hear your righteous decree. May we never become comfortable with dismissing the parts of Scripture that we don't like or that we don't find easy to follow. Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. And so we can be assured that nothing will cause God's word and his purpose to fail. And for that reason, and because of his great love for us, we ought to want to not be hearers only, but doers. Well, that reality comes to fruition in the second act of the chapter, chapter 36. Uh, we see in, in, the, in the final verses that Jeremiah is now told to take a second scroll and to record all that was written in the first scroll. You know, what a task. Poor Baruch. You know, I think of my hand cramping when I write a few cards, and I'm Baruch doing this every day. Well, they're to write everything that was recorded on the first scroll, and then they're going to be given additional words to record. So this scroll is going to get even longer. And part of that is a message to Jehoiakim. Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? That was why Jehoiakim was so mad. Simply because Jeremiah was bringing the word that if you don't repent, judgment's going to come. And so he burns it all. But of course, he could challenge Jeremiah. He could burn the scroll. He could arrest Jeremiah, even though he was unable to. Uh, he could he could do all of these things, but he did not have the power to stop God Almighty's purposes or prevent his word from going forth. And so as a result, he is judged. He is told his reign will come to an end. As I mentioned, Jehoiachin was only on the throne for three months. It's not even a legitimate reign. Uh, after that, his uncle came as a puppet king at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar before, from an earthly perspective, it would seem, the, the throne of David would come to an end. All the disaster that was promised, that Jehoiakim refused to believe, would indeed come upon Judah by the hand of the king of Babylon. Jeremiah and Baruch went back to work. They began filling the second scroll with all that God commanded, and the words that they added now make up the book of Jeremiah that we have today. Indeed, God's word stands forever. One commentator writes, Attempts to deny it, ban it, truncate it, or eradicate it have been made throughout the centuries, but it cannot be destroyed. The passage also serves as a reminder that many have risked and some have lost their lives in order to preserve the Word of God or to make it more accessible, like John Wycliffe, John Huss, and William Tyndale. Well, the king was judged. We see this uh, in his death. It's not recorded in Scripture, but Josephus tells us about it. And, uh, and he was initially buried, uh, but for, uh, humanly speaking, whatever reasons, they unearthed his body, and the very prophecy that was spoken over him did come true. Josephus describes his body being left out in the sun and in the frost uh, to rot, which was the ultimate shame for a person in, this, in the ancient Near East was to be unburied. 
It seems like the story comes to an end, right? The throne is, is, has ended. Uh, you know, where's the promise? David would have someone on his throne forever. Well, we know the story doesn't end here. And because the word of God is true and powerful, his promises endure and his word stands forever. And so we know that Jesus did come. He came and brought the kingdom of heaven to earth so that he now reigns on the throne of David and he will reign forever and ever. People will reject God's word. They'll dismiss it. They'll make light of it. But it will stand forever because it is his word. So today we have read it. We have heard it with our ears. And now we have the opportunity to come to the table to see it, to touch it, to taste the word proclaimed in the Lord's table that is set before us. Sensible signs, bread and wine pass before us to be received in faith, to serve to remind us of the truth of God's word. Elements point to the person of Christ and his work for us by a spiritual presence in the meal, inviting us to feed upon him in communion, the word made flesh. And we do this together as one body, remembering his word as we proclaim his death and his resurrection. It declares to us his obedience, his death for us, that we might have our sins forgiven and be redeemed. So the sermon doesn't end here. The sermon continues on to the table as we continue to hear, to listen to what God says for us. His word, it declares to us that in Christ our sins are forgiven and that we are made righteous in him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let's pray. Father, would you solidify our faith that what you have said will come to pass? Lord, that we could believe that our sins are indeed forgiven, that we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. We struggle, Lord, to believe that. Lord, we, we struggle to believe that we have a future and a hope, maybe not intellectually, we know better, but, but in the way that we are filled with fear and in anxiety and, 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 and discontentment and envy and all of the ways that we struggle, Lord, we, we do doubt. We do doubt that you satisfy, that in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We doubt those things. Would you cause your word to penetrate our hearts and strengthen our faith that we would know with certainty that your word stands forever. And would you continue now declaring your word to us through your table to build us up in Christ Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.